My name is Steve Becker. I was a district court judge in Reno County, Kansas for 26 years. Uh, Following my retirement from the bench, I served in the Kansas legislature. My name is Beth White. I worked in the criminal justice field the majority of my 20s and am now pursuing a nursing degree. My name is Sarah McKinnon. I am a public defender. I've been an attorney practicing law for 33 years, the last 23 years solely as a public defender. And this is Cleared. Did you pick up on a third voice? I was just going to say that sounded a little different, didn't it? Oh, my goodness. And I think it's hopefully, at least Beth and I hope, that it's going to be a uh, regular thing and no longer a guest. Uh, Our guest, our previous former guest, uh, has been promoted to co-host. So now we have three. And, of course, we're talking about my wife. My Beth, mom. Beth's mom. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> we are family. Okay, this is not a singing This podcast. is going to be Cue good. I roll. <laughs> she just adds a little spice. You know, like, you yeah. don't know, the TikTok. Just a little spice. Yeah. All right. I, welcome. Thank you. And welcome to our listeners. Uh We have another episode of Cleared. As we usually do, I am going to start with one statistic, and that is the current number of exonerations according to the National Registry of Exonerations. Um, And the number stands at 3345, 3,345. I think that's the number or a similar number that I've been giving on just about every episode recently. That's kind of hovering uh, hovering around that number. Uh, I really don't have any um, exoneration-related news to provide, Beth. I mean, other than our profile today? Not that I... Um, not that I have, no. I will say uh, this past week there was an arrest in the Long Island serial killer case, the Lisk case. Um, that was meaningful for me because that story's always kind of stuck with me. And I think it's interesting because they've always profiled that specific serial killer, if you will, as having 10 victims. And the DNA that came back only linked him to four. So I think that's kind of interesting just how law enforcement had in their mind this was what they were looking for when in actuality that's not the case and there are it looks to be at least i mean it's pretty early on in the game but it looks to be like there's more people out there that are involved so yeah that's very current uh from when we're recording this episode that occurred just in the within the last week yeah so uh that's pretty fresh news uh it's not as fresh news um but I'm always concerned about our neighboring state to the south, Oklahoma, um, and their death row. They have uh, really geared up with scheduling executions. Um, I have said many times in the past that Oklahoma likes to kill people. They're just not very good at it. 
because they had a series of botched executions. Yeah. Uh, but now they're gearing back up, and there's one particular case where there is substantial uh, evidence of innocence, and uh, that seems to make no difference to those in power. They are going forward with an execution date. Well, and they've got to hurry up and kill them before somebody can actually show the innocence because, you know, deed's done then. See? Spice. Yeah, that's what the uh, Missouri district attorney did. As soon as someone filed, as soon as a death row inmate filed a motion for a new trial, the, the attorney general, that's who I'm thinking of. No, it was the DA. I think it was the attorney general, too, wasn't it? We've it talked about be. him before. But anyway, as soon as the inmate filed a motion for a new trial, uh, the prosecutors asked for an execution date. Yeah, and guess which one came first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we They were. executed him before they gave him a hearing on the motion for a new trial. And it's interesting, the stories that you two have covered so far, you can be wrongfully accused, arrested, sent to prison in a blink of an eye, and it takes, as we see, years, years. Decades. Decades to rectify that. True. We started this this podcast uh, with a statement, I think, that um, it's easy to convict an innocent person, it is virtually impossible to exonerate one. Okay, so with that, Beth, who are we going to talk about? Today we're going to be talking about Kimberly Long. And I think since there's three of us, uh, Beth will continue to be our storyteller and her mother and I will interrupt her whenever we deem appropriate. (laughs) As always. I was going to say, that's a switch. I feel like it used to be the other way around. Interesting. I think it's the way it's always been. You think you interrupt me? Yes. Today we're going to be talking about Kimberly Long. Kimberly Long was a 27-year-old emergency room nurse, and she was also a motorcycle enthusiast. She had recently, in the past couple of months, reconnected with an old love of hers, Oswaldo, also known as Ozzy. And they got hot and heavy pretty fast. They moved in quite quickly and had been living together ever since. Ozzy was also into motorcycles. And in fact, just a few weeks before the crime, he had bought his very first bike. And at the time, they got hot and heavy. And he moved into her house. She was married. And he was in a long-time relationship. Let's put a pin in that. But yes, but I, yeah, like, I like where your head's they, going because that's important. Neither one of them were single. Yes. And they knew each other from childhood. They actually knew each other, I think, in middle school. And I think were kind of love interests then. And then her family ended up moving away and they lost contact. So here they are, late 20s. They find each other again and hot and heavy. Uh, One of the things they liked to do in their free time was ride motorcycles. He had just gotten his, and so they would go on bike rides with their friends. And I think they called them bike runs. And essentially what they would do was they'd spend the entire day riding motorcycles with their friends, going from one biker bar to the next, to the next, to the next, just having drinks and talking and having fun. So that's what they were doing uh, the night of the crime. So they were driving around, and they got to the last bar, which just happened to be a bar named Mavericks. Kim was there with Ozzy, her boyfriend, and they also had another person, a close friend of theirs named Jeff Deal, was there. So they were all talking, drinking, and Jeff, the friend, happened to see a couple of his friends there, too. So he ushered these two men over, and Kim began talking to them. This upset Ozzy because Ozzy felt like Kim was giving these men more attention than him. And so a fight kind of broke out between the two. Keep in mind, they're hot and fresh. Dad already alluded to they have some complications in their past and there's alcohol involved. So they get into an argument and they go outside. Kim goes outside and refuses to get back on the motorcycle with Ozzy and starts walking home. Uh, One of their friends happens to see her and ends up picking her up and driving her back to the apartment that she shares with Ozzy. And there was several of the people that ended up going back to the apartment, including Jeff Deal. 
So they get back to Kim's apartment, and that's probably 11, 11.30-ish. And the fight just continues to intensify. Kim's pushing Ozzy. Uh, I think at one time she swung her bicycle helmet at him. And Jeff kind of intervened and said, okay, this needs to stop or someone's going to jail. Kimberly told Ozzy that he needed to get his stuff out of the house and she was done with him. He needed to get out. He refused to do so. So Kim made the decision to go home with Jeff deals that night. So she gets on Jeff's bike and rides the 10, 15 minutes to Jeff's house. And all this happened. The last time they left Ozzy, there was probably 11, 1130 timeframe wise. They get to Jeff's house and they're talking. And according to Jeff, Kim's talking about how she's done with Ozzy and she wants him out of the house and it's over. And at some point, the two decide to get in Jeff's hot tub together. And according to Jeff, they engage in some sexual activity and they're making out what have you. And then all of a sudden, at some point, Kim just gets up and says, okay, I got to go home. I got to go home. And according to Jeff, he reluctantly agrees to take her back to the apartment. They drive back to the apartment. He drops Kim off and he says he remembers watching her because he wanted to make sure she got in the door. She gets in the door. He drives off. Now, from Kim's perspective, she opens the door, turns on the lights, and she sees Ozzy slumped over the love seat. There's blood everywhere and there's a huge gash in his head. And she thought that he was still breathing at this point. So she went over and tried to shake him a little bit. She sees the amount of blood and the huge gash. So she immediately calls uh, 911 for EMT to come. EMT comes. She tells him he was breathing. I don't know what happened. Maybe he got into a fight. I don't know what's going on. By the time the coroner gets there, it becomes very apparent that he is deceased and that he's been deceased for quite some time. His skin is ashen and his body temperature is already cold. So this wasn't something where he would have just died in between the phone call. He'd been dead for a little while. And and there's question whether or not rigor mortis has already set in too. Is there? Yes. Okay. So it's to the point though that he's clearly wasn't, he didn't just pass. His body's cold, his temperature's decreased, and um, the decomposition process has already started. Yeah, I think they ref- one of the witnesses referred to it as liquidity, where the blood, blood starts to pool in the lower parts uh, because it's not being circulated anymore. And we've got to keep in mind that Kimberly, although she is an ER nurse, an emergency room nurse, um, she apparently had the day off and had been drinking heavily most of the day. Yeah. Most of the day. Everybody in the story, to my knowledge, has. Yes. There's never any kind of um, documentation or testing done on everybody, but you've got to assume if they're spending the entire day going from one bar to the next to the next that there's alcohol involved. And there well, was... I believe Kimberly told officers she had 10 beers and 10 shots. So highly intoxicated. Wow. Yeah. In addition to that, she had taken a couple of Vicodin earlier in the evening. So she was she was intoxicated. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, so they determine he's dead and they start doing the interviews. They immediately talk to Kim. Obviously, she's the person that found him. And Kim readily admits that they got into a very big argument that night. Because of that argument, the police gave her a polygraph test. And guess what? She passed. She fa- no. She passed. She passed. Clear pass. Well, that should have ended the case. Yeah. And just again for the timeline, they left him around 1130, and the time of the 911 call was 209. So two-ish hours in between, two and a half hours in between, that's the time frame when someone was in there and killed Ozzy. And before law enforcement spoke with her, um, she was caused to sit and wait with another officer from approximately 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So clearly very distraught. And you can you can hear uh, a lot of the information I found. There was a really good podcast that covered her story. And they have interviews from her, interviews from jurors. Um, they have the police the 911 call, they have the interviews, the police detectives did with all these individuals. So if you're interested in going down a deep dive of this case, I highly suggest it. We'll link the name of it at the end. So anyways, they they do this interview with Kim, she passes a lie detector test, and they proceed on investigating the case. Or do they? <laughs> well, they do. 
to their defense. They didn't solely just look at her. So the suspects, as I line them up, I'm sure they interviewed more people. Um, there was really four major ones. Dad already alluded to that both Kim and Ozzy had significant others, exes in their life that were actively causing them issues. Let's start with Kim's ex. His name is Joe Bogarski. They were married, like Dad says, and he was living in the apartment with Kim when they, when Kim and Ozzy got together. So Kim kicked Joe out of the house and moved Ozzy in. And in that process, her ex Joe actually installed video and auto recording equipment in the house to record her. It was a very tumultuous relationship. Um, I believe, I don't know, it was Joe, she has two children from other people. And I think maybe Joe was the father of one of her children too, but I, I don't know for sure. So we'll put a hold on that. So he was obviously a suspect. The police went and talked to him and he said that, well, he had a very clean alibi. He was staying at a, at a, at a place with his girlfriend and his son. I believe it was their son. And they were sharing bunk beds and they was there the whole night. So he very quickly got ruled out as far as a suspect was for Ozzy's murder. Well, he already had a girlfriend? Yeah. It's just this whole situation, as we'll see, it's very much a messy kind of love situation. Very much yes. so. So I'm going to do my best to describe it in a manner that won't get everybody confused. So then there's Ozzy. Ozzy had an ex-girlfriend, a longtime romantic interest named Cheyenne Lovejoy. And that is who initially, when the police detectives were talking to Kim, and they asked Kim, is there anybody that would you would see doing this to Ozzy? She immediately pointed the finger at Cheyenne. So Cheyenne is Ozzy's ex and the mother of his child. According to Cheyenne, when they were interviewed her, they were in some sort of weird love triangle situation. And Cheyenne had no love for Kim at all. In fact, there's documentation of her saying that she was going to slit Kim and Ozzy's throats. At one point, she mailed a letter to Kim's house saying, essentially implying that her and Ozzy were having an affair and that Kim didn't know about it and proceeded to go in very graphic detail of sexual acts that Cheyenne, the ex, and Ozzy were doing without Kim knowing. Just that kind of behavior was present. So very toxic situation. At one point, Cheyenne went to this apartment that Ozzy and Kim shared, and she squirted some sort of super glue into their door locks to make it difficult for them to get into. And then with a black Sharpie marker wrote on Ozzy's white truck, asshole and deadbeat. Because of this, Ozzy filed a protection from stalking order. And I don't think it ever actually went all the way through the courts, but that was filed just shortly before his death. Well, it had been set for hearing just a couple of weeks down After, the road. Yeah, I, so he had already filed for it. So obviously police are very closely looking at Cheyenne. So they give her a polygraph test. And wouldn't you know, she passed all but one question. And the one question that indicated inconclusive was dealing with whether or not she knew of or had Ozzy killed. So essentially, she did not pass that question. It was not a straight out fail. It was just inconclusive. So going back from the history that we have with this show and polygraph test, you would think that Kim having passed the polygraph, she would be out and Cheyenne having not passed the polygraph would be looked at further, but that's not the case. So, well, and let me, let me put an asterisk here. Oftentimes um, polygraph examinations are used by law enforcement, not investigative to, tool, not to get to the truth of the matter. It's to get an accused person in a room behind locked doors so that they can question them because that's what happens during a polygraph examination. So the polygraph examination, I think is used primarily for intimidation intimidation and an opportunity to interrogate well and eddie lauer i think was one where they he passed and they outright told him he lied so that's something too i know when i worked for parole we used polygraph polygraph services um with people that were convicted of sex offenses and it wasn't if they failed the polygraph we weren't allowed to punish them or revoke their parole in any manner but it was 
definitely meant as a talking point to instigate some sort of conversation and figure out what's going. So that kind of yeah, ties the, along with that. I, I read something uh, in preparation for this episode that uh, said that the police use polygraph uh, however they wanted to. If you failed, they would certainly use it in interrogation. If you passed, they'd lie to you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not me putting any kind of credence into the effectiveness or the effectiveness of polygraphs in general. It's just me saying that in this one case where they had one that passed and they had one that was questionable, they just reversed it and it didn't even matter anyway. So I think that's ironic to mention. Well, and here's a newsflash. Polygraph results are not admissible in any court of law in this entire United States because they are not scientifically reliable. Yeah. Yeah. So she does not do so hot on the polygraph and she provides them with an alibi, which ultimately is what gets her dismissed from the suspect list. Or non-alibi. Her alibi was that she had met a new gentleman caller and they had went on a date and they ended up renting a hotel room and she spent the night in the hotel room with this new gentleman caller. But what about the receipts for the hotel room? Apparently she paid cash. Interesting. So, but that was the alibi that got her off the suspect list. So the other person that was present for all this is Jeff Dills. He is the individual that was with them the entire day, was bar hopping with them. He is the individual that Kim went back to his house. I mean, he's very in in this case. So he essentially told the same story as Kim, only it differed when he said that he took her back to her house. He says he has a very distinctive memory of after dropping her off at the house, he came back to his house, which is about 10, 15 minutes away from Kim's. And he very vividly remembers looking at the clock and it was one forty-five. That would mean that he dropped Kim off at her apartment between one twenty and one thirty. Immediately, alarm bells, whatever goes off and police detectives head went off because that gives her anywhere from 45 to 55 minutes in the residence with Ozzy deceased before she made the 911 call at 209. And keep in, keep in mind that Mr. Dill had um, partook in probably just as much alcohol as everybody else did that day as well. And that's the only evidence that tied her to anything with his, and I say evidence very loosely, the only thing that tied her to the crime. So the police detectives go back and re-interview Kim, and there's audio. You can look on YouTube, too. There's actual physical video of this. And she's being interviewed by police detectives, and they said, well, Jeff said that they dropped you off between 1.20 and 1.30. And you could see in her mind, immediately she knew what was going on. Immediately she knew that she was going to be, her, the finger was being pointed at her, and she re- reacts accordingly. She just keeps saying no. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. No. And she, it's, it's heartbreaking to see because you could just see her wheels turning. Like she knows nothing good is coming down this, this road for her. And the police end up pursuing prosecution against her. Another important note is that when they took Kim into custody for her to be interviewed by the police detectives that night, they took her clothing as evidence also keep in mind this crime scene was horrifically bloody it was gruesome let's talk about this crime there was blood splatter 360 degree 360 degree on the walls on the floor on the couch on uh baseball bats by the front door it went 360 degrees it was a bloody mess they talked about jumping ahead a little bit the jurors talked about how they showed pictures of the actual crime scene and there was an actual outline of where ozzy was standing that was not bloody behind him because you could i mean that's just how much blood was just everywhere and also at time of trial, there was expert testimony that Ozzy had been struck between three and eight times at the same place on his skull. So they proceeded with prosecution against Kimberly. Um, the first trial happened in early 2005, and it actually ended in a mistrial due to a hung jury. And nine to three. Nine in favor of acquittal. So they geared up, the prosecution geared up for the second trial, which occurred in December of 2005, and that ended up with conviction. And I'm here to tell you, that's a pretty quick turnaround. 
that's a pretty quick, quick turnaround from mistrial to, to the retrial. Next. Yeah. Especially in a very populated area such as, uh, I think we're talking about Riverside, Riverside County California. in California. It's She's actually from Corona, which is 50 miles outside of Los Angeles, if I'm speaking correctly. So a very big area. She's convicted. The judge... Judge Patrick Majors, he's actually known in the area as being a more prosecutor-friendly judge. He says after the verdict that if it were up to him, if it were a bench trial, he would not have found her guilty. He didn't think there was enough evidence to prove this. So he is saying this to her after she's received a guilty verdict. He instead, and her family, there's an interview with her mom where her mom's talking about, okay, he's going to be our angel. He's going to fix this. Clearly, he sees what's wrong. But instead of doing anything about it or trying to right this wrong that he sees, he go ahead and orders her 15 to life in prison. I've got to interject at this point. Yeah, that really bothered me, what the judge said. And I, from what I read, I didn't. I couldn't tell whether he made that statement at the time of sentencing or whether he made it a time when he, uh, when Kimberly filed a routine uh, motion for judgment of acquittal. He might have said it at that hearing, and maybe those were at the same time. But yeah. It's And he starts, he prefaces his comments with, I want to make the record perfectly clear. And then he says, if this case was a court trial, if the court would have heard the evidence in the case, I would have found the defendant not guilty. I would have found that the evidence was insufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Excuse me, Your Honor, why, why would the sentencing judge make a statement like that? In the state of Kansas... What's he trying to do, console the defendant? It's just like saying, you should have waived your right to a jury trial, sweetie, and gone with me, because I would have walked you, but... It's 15 to life. Except he was in a position, he was the only person in a position to correct that. So that's my question as a layperson. Can he can he not accept the verdict from the jury? Like, there, is, what, what? How would that go about? At least in Kansas, obviously. I'm not going to have you speculate on California because who knows what they do in California. But what would happen in Kansas if that were the situation? In Kansas, there's, there's a motion you can file after a verdict of guilt. The uh, defense attorney. Defense attorney. Okay. Um, motion for judgment of acquittal. Notwithstanding the jury verdict, the judge always can step in and write what the court but feels a motion is wrong. He had just done that yes he had heard the motion for acquittal and denied it and then he makes those statements what is he doing it yeah sweetie if you would have gone with me i would have walked you well let's go back to the first statement that beth made this was a judge that was known to be more prosecution oriented so there's your answer which, see, and I take that to mean if that's how he leans to tend to favor in the side of prosecution, this is even more momentous that he said this at all. I mean, this is, shows how egregious this prosecution was. And he did it anyway. So, And it is a por- important question that Beth asked is whether a judge can overrule or set aside or nullify a jury verdict. And... In the civil arena, yes, definitely. I mean, there's even an acronym for it. You got to love acronyms. We're all going to be speaking in acronyms soon. Some of us already are. Well, BFD, WTF, (laughs) PMS, KGB, Um, (coughs) JNOV, judgment notwithstanding verdict. It's kind of an interesting acronym because it has an o in it and there's no word that starts with an o but still it's it's judgment notwithstanding a verdict and it's it's used in civil cases oftentimes when a case is all about monetary damages 
and the plaintiff, the injured party, the plaintiff has sued and asked for $10,000 and the jury returns the jury returns a verdict of $10 million. Yeah, the judge there will be a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. Why would a jury do that? Because the defendant pissed them off. So well, and also, also when a jury awards um, like punitive damages that go above any statutory caps, they'll like be a- the McDonald's coffee. Yes. Side note: If you're not familiar with the McDonald's coffee story, sweet little lady spilled coffee on herself. You need to go listen to "You're Wrong About Podcasts," specifically about that issue, because in popular culture, it's painted as something a thousand percent what it's not. It's painted as her being greedy and going after. It's not that at all. It's it not about. Not- crazy um lawyers yeah it's not that at all she I burned myself bad on mcdonald's coffee she suffered tremendously and initially all she was seeking was just to pay her medical bills so that case has a very bad rap it's you're wrong about podcast you need to listen to it it blew my mind okay so back to this so she ends up going to prison she spends seven years in prison her attorneys file appeals for her and they go to the appeals court, and the appeals court reverses the decision and sends it back to Judge Majors to have a retrial. So the case gets to Judge Majors, and he dismisses it, outright dismisses it. So she thinks she's good to go. You know, that's her exoneration story. She's getting out. She's trying to live her life. But then apparently the DA filed an appeal on Judge Major's decision. So that's running in the background during this time, too. And the appeal ends up catching up because it goes back to the higher level courts. And they said, yeah, you're right. That wasn't right. And then reversed that decision again and sent it back. So they remanded it back to the courts to figure out custody, meaning that they sent it back to the courts so they could get her back in prison. Speaking of acronyms, WTF. <laughs> so just a little side note before or you want to get... Okay, you go first. One of the things I did in preparing for this episode um, is I found another podcast about Kimberly Long. I listened to that and then scrolled down to some of the comments that were made. I probably should say that the uh, podcast is Dr. Todd Grande, G-R-A-N-D-E. This is Dr. Todd Grande, and he did a podcast. And scrolling down to the uh, comments, one of the comments, I'll quote, I would never want to be judged by a jury of my peers because most of the time my peers are stupid and biased and incapable of comprehensive thought that doesn't include their own opinion at the core. I've always thought about that. I just accept jury judgment. They're just 12 people. Gotta love comments. I'm, I'm going to have to disagree with that. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I think that ties into what I want to talk to next. And part of my research, the documentary I was mentioning earlier is a CBS special called Flawed Justice, the Kimberly Long podcast. And it talks about they have the privilege of going and interviewing alternate jurors and the jury foreman. So something that wasn't, I I can't believe I forgot to mention this, you know, Jeff Deals, the friend, the one she hooked up with the night, the one that changed the timeline that implicated her in the first place. He died. Before trial, he died. But after prelim. After preliminary. So they had the, the testimony of him at prelim, but they didn't have anything... They couldn't cross-examine him, obviously, during the trial. So the only thing that got in, apparently, to my knowledge, unless you two know differently, is the time frame, which is what implicates her. Which brings me to a question for our newest co-host. How important is cross-examination of state's witnesses at preliminary hearing? And is that ever limited uh, by the court at the prosecution's request so important Uh, a preliminary hearing is something that happens at least in the state of kansas and i'm sure there's similar provisions in in the state of california a preliminary hearing is a probable cause hearing Uh, the state has to present witnesses in the form of testimony um, evidence to convince a judge um, not beyond a reasonable doubt that this crime was committed but merely is there probable cause to believe this crime was committed 
probable cause to believe that the accused had something to do with it. Oftentimes, the preliminary hearing is scheduled early in the case. Discovery still coming in. Um, discovery is always still coming in, even sometimes after the jury's been sworn in. Or convicted. Or convicted. Um, but it's very early on in the case. Um, you know, unfortunately, we work in a criminal justice system where it's piece in, piece out, just like a just like a factory producing widgets. Um, we got to get these cases moving. We've got to get them through. Um, you are not oftentimes allowed to have extensive cross-examination of witnesses at a preliminary hearing um, because the state will argue it's not relevant. And if the judge has three more cases set to hear uh, that afternoon for preliminary hearings, sometimes that objection will be sustained. So the only time you will have um, to cross-examine or talk to state's witnesses is when they're on the stand at a preliminary hearing. And oftentimes you're doing it with one hand tied behind your back because you don't have all the discovery in the case yet. Yeah, and it gives us another opportunity to contrast criminal law with the civil proceedings. Oh, my goodness. In civil proceedings, there is just so much discovery, and everybody is deposed. They take depositions of every possible witness so that they have their testimony and they can study it. There are not depositions in criminal law and criminal proceedings. As Sarah pointed out, the preliminary hearing is the only time the defense attorney can depose state's witnesses and and investigating officers. And in my view, they should be given a wide latitude in cross-examining these witnesses in an effort to prepare for the trial. That's what it's about. To find the truth. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. You know, and I'll, I'll put a caveat to that. If these witnesses are willing to speak with defense counsel or defense counsel's investigators outside of courtroom, God bless, and, and sometimes they do. A lot of times they are encouraged by the prosecution not to talk to defense attorneys, investigators, or defense attorneys. Imagine that. So let's let's give an example of why we need that. So in this case, obviously, Jeff dies, so they're not able to talk to him. Come to find out after her conviction, they found it, uh, the original, I assume, interview between Jeff and the police detectives just two days after Ozzy's passing. And in that interview, they're asking Jeff, okay, what what was Kim wearing? And he goes into explicit detail, which... For me and a man being able to name off the exact thing, it just blows my mind. He was of into she, her. Of what she's wearing, down to the pattern on her shirt, down to the color of her belt. Like, the exact outfit she was wearing, he described impeccably. So he was able to give this, their documentation of him saying this to the police. Wouldn't you know, the the clothing that they collected from Kim while she was being interviewed was the exact clothing that Jeff described. Now, you may be wondering, okay, big deal, whatever. No, it's a big deal because we already talked about the crime scene. We already talked about the how there's a 360-degree blood spatter spray everywhere. So if she were the person that attacked Ozzy, she would be covered in blood. They took those clothes. They did all of the tests. There was nothing on the clothes. There was no blood anywhere on there, on her person, on her hair, on her fingers, nothing. I'll go a step further. They go, they look at the drain traps. They look at the sink. They look at the washing machine. They look at the toilet. No evidence of any biological material. No evidence of any kind of cleanup. They look for cleaning materials. Nope, none found. They go so much as to look for damp towels in the house to, to see if they had been cleaned. Nothing. Nothing present anywhere. Well, that's interesting because that's exactly what the prosecutor argued she had done in the second trial that garnered that, a conviction. That was the theory of the prosecution is that she committed the crime and then and then chained or took her clothes off and destroyed them. The 45 to 50 minutes. We're talking about a span of 45 to 50 minutes. Let's say 50 on a, on a good day that 
Jeff dropped her off at the house and she made the 911 call. All of that happened within that time without any evidence of any kind of cleanup, without any kind of biological material on her, where nothing in the sinks, nothing in the shower, nothing in the washing machine, no damp, I mean, nothing. No, no freaking weapon that used, no crime. I mean, nothing, absolutely nothing. So all of that became aware after her first trial, which they, that's initially, I believe, tell me if I'm wrong, is the prefaces for the appeals process. Because in order for her to file an appeal, there has to be some sort of, I'm going to say technicality, what's the right word? Legally sufficient. Legal issue. Her being innocent is not enough of a legal issue to file appeal. They need something to present to the Court of Appeals. So they presented the notion of ineffective counsel. And that's what the appeals court heard. Her counsel was not effectively representing her. And because of that, she needs a new trial. And they used that evidence. But at the end of the day, it had nothing to do with the evidence. Nothing at all about her, her conviction being overturned. It was all on how her attorney argued that she had ineffective counsel. And just a caveat to that, her trial attorney, her original trial attorney, I read was also currently on two capital punishment cases, death row cases that he was actively investigating and working on. So this man was not, I mean, he, he had a more than full plate. So, well, I'll let you know that um, most capital defense attorneys are limited by ethics and in practice on how many cases they can work at one time when they have a capital case pending. And it's not very many. Yeah. I would also say in something that I read during my research was that one of the points they argued for ineffective assistance of counsel was that the the trial, um, the defense attorney at trial did not cross-examine that Jeff witness. The deceased? Yes. Yeah. Sufficiently. You know, the one that died prior bef- to the trial. Before trial. And they were putting it on the defense counsel because he didn't do extensive cross examination, which oftentimes isn't done at a preliminary hearing. Um, because you don't have all the information and because you're not allowed to. So, all so I the- thought that was a cheap shot. All this evidence came out about her wearing the same clothes that Jeff dropped her off in that the police eventually confiscated for her. Huge red flags, huge holes in the prosecution's case. That podcast I mentioned, Flawed Justice, went to the jury foreman and the two alternates and presented this evidence to them and said, okay, this is this is the fact. She was wearing the same clothes. How do you feel about it? All three of them said she would not have been convicted if they had known that. Clearly, she could not have done it if they had known that. I understood from my research that the two alternates, after the trial, went to the judge and and said we would have voted for acquittal. Well, and I think the alternates, something that they talked about quite a bit was that it was over the holidays, and they were kind of upset with the sitting jurors because a lot of them were just so annoyed that they were there over the holidays and they couldn't get their Christmas shopping done. And that was just a reoccurring conversation for them. And the alternates are like this, we're talking about this woman's life and you're concerned about when you're going to buy your Christmas presents. That that's something that stood out to them too. And I will say initially they are pulled right, right after they heard everything, closing arguments, they go into the jury room to deliberate. They are pulled immediately and it was 11 to one And the one holdout, his issue was he wanted to talk about her clothes because that hadn't been talked about at all during trial. He wanted to know, okay, was there stuff on her clothes? Because nobody talked about during the trial. So I think that's interesting. The one thing that he wanted to talk about was something that ended up helping her be exonerated. Yeah, go figure. It ended up being pretty important. Pretty important. After uh, Kimberly was um, exonerated, she filed a civil lawsuit um, against the police officers um, in the case. And I, I pulled the petition that she filed. And the allegations in that petition um, indicate to me that law enforcement w- was fabricating evidence, was hiding evidence, manipulating and feeding information to witnesses to get, I don't know, the time 
lined up. Because yeah. keep in mind, the only reason that Kimberly Long was charged with this crime was that Mr. Dill told law enforcement that he dropped her off at one thirty. Mm-hmm. Between he was home at one forty five, so it had to have been between one twenty and one thirty five or and something. And the nine one one call from Kimberly didn't occur till two oh five. Two oh nine. Two oh nine. So there's like 30, 40 minutes unaccounted for. And everybody's assuming that Mr. Dill was correct in his recollection of the time. Yeah. Well, and to add to that story, there is an interview, I believe it's with maybe Jeff's mom, one of his family members afterwards, where, and this is all secondhand, obviously, because Jeff didn't say this. There's no record of Jeff saying it's just somebody else saying that Jeff said this, that it was either going to be him or her, and that the police not pressured, but encouraged him on the timeline. Like they, they pretty much told him this is the timeline is what Jeff, according to, I believe it's his mom, according to his mom, that's what he told her. He was either going down or was Kim was going down. One of the two. Those two adjectives you used or verbs that you used, pressured or encouraged, they're synonymous. Yeah. And from the civil petition, this, this question about the clothing and her wearing the exact same thing all day, and, and Mr. Dill verified that, there's some question in my mind that law enforcement didn't just bury that evidence. So I'm not sure defense counsel even knew about it. If he did, my goodness, that's the very definition of ineffective. Yeah. Well, and I think it was a second hearing the DA at the time there was some mention about this and the DA stated on record at the time that it was their belief that she did not change clothes. So that that's on record for this too. The prosecutor in his closing argument, right before the jury goes back to deliberate, states that she changed clothes. And there's no evidence that she did. We find out later that there's evidence that she didn't. But he made that statement right before they go back, and it was it was not supported by the evidence. So, yeah, it played a big part. It played rem- a big part. And remember John Dill. John Dill was the friend that Kimberly was with the night, the hot tub, little romantic interlude. Um, he was with uh, Kimberly all day long. He was initially a suspect in the case. He was initially a suspect in the case. And law enforcement, at least one of the allegations in the civil suit against law enforcement made by Kimberly Long, one of the allegations is that the law enforcement officers pressured Mr. Dill into adopting their version of the timeline. Yeah, that that adds up to what I... Of course, they didn't write it down in their police reports, and they kind of kept that secret from, from defense counsel. Okay, so back to Kim. We have... The jury was made aware of this evidence, not in any kind of formal way, just in an investigative interview by this podcast. They stated that they would not have found her guilty. So she was convicted, sentenced to 15 years to life. They appealed it, and it got brought back down to her original trial judge. He dismissed the case. So she thinks she's exonerated. And where I left off was the DA filed an appeal. 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 Appeal of the judge's decision. Because they've got to be right. They don't make mistakes. They filed an appeal of that decision, and then the Supreme Court reversed the trial judge's opinion, and then they were ordering her to report back to prison. But it was kind of up in the air, because at that point, her attorneys, she got involved with the California Innocence Project. They were reaching out for clemency and pardons from two sitting uh, governors, and then I think it was the California State Appeals Court accepted her case and made made note that they were going to make a decision on the appeal process. The only problem with that is typically for those cases, I mean, it could be one years. to two years, which in fact, it was two years. So this entire time, Kim's out, thankfully. The judge granted her bond to be out during this appeals process so she didn't have to immediately go back to prison. So that's a saving grace. She had restrictions on travel. She wasn't allowed to leave Riverside County. And this was a good chunk of the time that the appeals process was. She couldn't leave her tiny little county. So that was very limiting on her. She had two grown children at this point, but somehow she managed to maintain a positive attitude. She lost her nursing degree upon the conviction of the case. So she started a small dog grooming business and just hiked out in the wilderness out with nobody as often as she could. 
while this appeals process is going while they're waiting for the opinion of the the appeals court, an informant reaches out to Kimberly's attorneys. And it's a prison informant. And apparently this happens quite a bit. So Kimberly's attorneys took a decent amount of time trying to verify what this man was saying. And they ended up, he was in the right place at the right time and knew the right people. So what he was saying could actually be factual. So her Turo attorneys went to the prison where this individual was located. And he starts telling a story that he was in prison with this biker gang. And they said what actually happened. So according to this prison informant, um, essentially everything pretty much lines up. They were drinking all day. They went to that last bar, Mavericks, where they met two of Jeff's friends. And he they give them false names, so I'm not even going to mention names, but there's two individuals there. And Kimberly's kind of flirting with them and playing it up, and that sets Ozzy off, and they have a fight. So all of that's exactly the same, what happened. And then they go back to Kim's house, and they le- Kimberly leaves with Jeff. So according to this prison informant, once Kimberly is at Jeff's house... Kimberly's saying, I don't want him there anymore. I just want him out of my house. And Jeff professes his feelings for her, says that he really likes her. He wants her to be his girlfriend. And that's when they start to become intimate. Before they go out to the hot tub, Kimberly goes into his bathroom to change, which is something that Kimberly hadn't told anybody. She didn't tell him specifically what room she went into. So this was holding credence with Kimberly because nobody knew this information. And while Kimberly was in the bathroom changing, Jeff calls the two friends from the bar and says, hey, do me a solid. You remember that guy that Kim was with? He's abusive. She doesn't want him there anymore. Will you go scare him, get him out of the house, maybe beat him up a little? They said, okay, bet. I'm going to bring the other guy that was in the bar with me. We're going to go over there now. Keep her at your house until we're done and we'll call you. So this entire time, Kimberly's in the hot tub with him. They're doing whatever they're doing. And I think I may have mentioned Kimberly just immediately at some point just wants to go home. And Jeff is very hesitant on taking her home. Well, apparently the two individuals showed up to the house. They knocked on the door. Ozzy answered it and they said, get the F out of the house. She doesn't want you here. Get out now. Ozzy says, no, he has a gun and he's going to call the police. He turns, according to them, runs to the bedroom to get the gun and... The individuals that came to the house, according to this informant, had an axe handle. They hit him over the head. He fell up against the couch and landed there. The two individuals were talking about whether or not they needed to drag him out, but they both decided there was too much blood there that they were just going to leave him and go. So they went, they burned their clothes, they disposed of the axe, and they did not call Jeff back immediately. So that's why Jeff was, according to them, that's why Jeff was hesitant to take Kimberly back because they didn't know if he'd already been there or not. And he didn't want to take him before then. Cause I think ultimately what they're playing it as that he wants to be in Ozzy's position. He wants to be with Kim. So they take him back. Everything unfolds the way it unfolds. And they call the two individuals called Jeff the following day said, Hey, he said he had a gun. He was going to call the police. We hit him. He died, you know, whatever. And according to the informant, Jeff tells them, okay, I'm going to be a suspect in this. We have, we can't have any more contact again. We're done. So what happened to Jeff? Dill? He died in a motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. He like ran, he at a high speed, I think rear ended somebody. So not necessarily suspicious if that's what you're getting towards. But when Kim was told this story, because Kim always believed it was Cheyenne, the ex-girlfriend, she was this entire time, she thought it was Cheyenne. And with good reason. I mean, Cheyenne herself said she was going to kill or slash her and Ozzy's throat. When Kim was told this story, she said that makes a lot of sense because just the layout of her house, how he would have had to turn to go to the bedroom because nobody knew about the weapon other than the police and the police interview that night. They asked her if she had a weapon, but it wasn't broadcast. He wasn't killed with a weapon, so nobody knew about it. Come to find out that night, the weapon was missing and was never located. The shotgun that she had at her house, never found, happened to be missing that very night. And there was a patch of blood on the left side of the couch, which didn't fit with any of the investigators' theories on what happened to Ozzy. And if he was running away and turned, how he would have fell would have hit on the couch. So it would have lined up. So that matches the evidence of this informant, too. The way the law enforcement dealt with that shotgun that was missing, they said that 
Kimberly tried to make it look like a robbery after yeah. she killed Ozzy tried to make it look like a robbery by disposing of some of the personal property that was in there. So all of those details and the fact that she specifically went to Jeff's bathroom to change really rung home true for Kim about how this possibly could have been what happened. There's, to my knowledge, not been any investigation on it. The individual that was the producer for the podcast, Randy Page. He handed all this information over to the police department and the district attorney's office, but neither one of them would give them any kind of information or indication on whether or not they investigated it or not. So I'm assuming, because he had the actual names of the individuals, but he just obviously didn't release it on the podcast. So I'm assuming nothing came of that. You guys have covered how many cases? Exoneration. 19. 19. Is this the 20th? I think so. The 20th case, um, Kimberly Long. Let's take a moment and talk about the costs, both in real dollars and cents, how how much it costs to incarcerate someone um, for seven years. It's interesting that you mention that. And let's also talk about um, the cost to the person who was exonerated, Ms. Long. I'd like to address that as well, that latter part. Well, before we get into that, let's tie up her story and then we could finish with okay. that. So they, the Supreme or the California Appeals Court initially took two years to rule on her case. In November 30th, 2020, they ruled in her favor unanimously citing an effective counsel in order to new trial. Again, this podcast recorded her reaction to it. I was bawling. Because she, she gets the phone call from her attorney, and she doesn't know. I mean, she's either going back to prison or she's not. I mean, this is very much a, like, this is going to be the rest of her life. And you can hear, like, the anxiety in her voice because they don't immediately tell her. So, yeah, I highly recommend listening to that. So everything goes in their favor. But now it's up to the DA whether or not they're going to file charges again. And how many times have we heard about the DA acting like they're going to pursue prosecution when they have little zilp, nothing, no evidence. So that kind of what is what happens with her. So the, the appeals court made the division decision on November 30th, 2020. And then April 22nd, 2021, the DA finally dismissed all charges against Kimberly. So at that point it was over for her. Good. Good. Uh, And again, with the ineffective counsel, nothing had to do with the evidence. The original decision that was cited was that it was ineffective counsel because the original attorney didn't call in expert witnesses to dispute the time of death. It wasn't about this tape that they found with their clothes. They weren't looking at her like factually innocence. They were looking at what legal issues arose during the case that would allow her to have a new trial, which just blows my mind. Somebody can be innocent and that's okay. Somebody can be innocent and incarcerated and then that's okay. But you have to find some sort of legal misstep somewhere before you can even get that in front of a new court. You know what blows my mind? Um, the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. I read through part of the opinion the appeal opinion. And it appears to me that her defense counsel was deemed to be ineffective because he couldn't discover what the state and law enforcement had hidden from him during two flippin' trials. And we all know what that's called. Brady. Brady violation. Brady. Brady. What, Brady, what was the last name again? Brady and Giglio. Brady and Giglio. We can add to our Brady violation. Brady and Giglio violation. Let's look at, because I think I've listened to your episodes, even though I haven't been on them. And there seems to That's be... Nice. Thank, Thank you. you. You're Thank you. There seems to be a theme of the factors that um, are present in wrongful conviction cases. Brady. Brady violations. Um, eyewitness misidentification. Yes. yes. False confessions. Yes. People don't people don't confess to crimes they didn't commit. No, do. no. Okay. No. Um, police and prosecutorial misconduct. Yep. And that's where we would file the Brady, the Brady violation, flawed forensic evidence, and perjured testimony. There you have it. Five. The big five. Yep. Um, 
Kimberly has two adult children. She, I can't find anything about her online, Facebook, any kind of social things, which just makes me so happy for her because I hope she is just out there living her best possible life ever. She was very big on traveling since she was stuck in that Riverside County for 15 years. She spent the good deal of her time traveling. So by all accounts that I, I'm going to tie it up as she's happy, healthy, living with her two children a son and a daughter. Her daughter um, is married. She is a juvenile corrections officer and has children. Kimberly did say, though, as a parent for her, the costs tying in with you, that one day away from her children is too much. Yep. Her babies were 12 and 17 when she was sent to prison. And then seven years later. And then on top of that, her daughter had moved out of the county, so she wasn't even allowed to see her daughter because she wasn't in the county. Every birthday, every holiday, prom. The birth of her grandchildren. Sports. I think she did get to go to the wedding, so there's something. But Graduations, yeah. I mean. And we talk about, with- there's no number. There's no number that you can assign to that that will make that right. It's not. She struggled uh, to find a job when she was first released. Now, keep in mind, this was an ER nurse, a licensed practicing nurse. Um, her license was suspended. Um, and she, <laughs> her license was suspended and she couldn't get it reinstated because the board of nursing said that she had not yet been rehabilitated from a crime that she didn't commit. That's crazy. She defaulted on every outstanding loan that she had, including student loans, because she was out of commission for seven years, trying to find a new career to go into. She wanted to take student loans out. She couldn't because she had defaulted. She defaulted because she was in prison. Yes. Wrongfully. She defaulted on her mortgage, and she couldn't get a loan for real estate. Couldn't get a job. Couldn't explain to creditors well why she was gone for seven years. Yeah. I mean the the cost to, the personal cost to these people and they are people. They are human beings. The cost to these human beings is just too much. Just too much. The cost for the st- taxpayers of the state of California was a little bit over five hundred thousand dollars. It cost to uh, keep her incarcerated for those seven years. Five hundred thousand dollars. So the personal costs are high to these people. Um, There was a civil lawsuit that she filed. Um, She filed that in 2020, I believe, and um, it was settled for $350,000 and change. And I say good for her, and that doesn't... I was going to say, it's not even a fraction of what she deserves. No, no. Do you have any closing thoughts, Stephen? Not anymore, because our new co-host stole my thunder. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, She was quoting the same uh, document uh, that I was going to read from because these, I don't know what you call them, social costs or domestic costs apply to every exoneree. 3,300 of them have the same experience that Kimberly Long has had and and what these uh, what this has has cost them so and you um, can't you can't outrun them I mean your credit has been harmed no matter how big of an award you get I mean there's damage that cannot be undone with money well and that's just physical think of the mental toll that these individuals must experience I, I've said it before. I can't imagine experiencing even a fraction of what they've experiencing, experienced and then going back into society and trying to readjust myself and not just be terrified all the time. Well, there's locked in cages for years, years. I'm just talking about the simple fact that you didn't do anything wrong the first time and this is what happened. What's to prevent that from happening again? For sure. For sure. I've, in my research for this episode, I have to confess, I stumbled across exonerationnation.org. Um, I encourage you to go there. Uh, there is a lengthy statement by Kimberly. I mean, she has composed it. She has written it out. And that's what I was going to quote from when it comes to the costs that were involved in this, these personal and domestic and, and social costs. Um, so I'd encourage you to visit that site. It's um, 
their mission is not different from ours, and that is to bring attention to uh, the wrongfully convicted and and try to do something about it. Um, I will mention it's a couple of things about that. She states um, that she was afraid to, she couldn't sleep because if she closed her eyes, she was afraid that when she opened them, she'd be in prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And when she was first released, she says the first few days or the first here, I quote, my first few days home were a blur. So much to be done and so much to get used to again. I had to get reestablished. I had no clothes, no personal belongings. My lawyers bought me a purse and some clothes to come home in. And that's all I had. I couldn't sleep for the first few months after coming home for the reason that I previously stated. And and she states that the struggles that she's experiencing apply to all the exonerees. Continuing to quote, I'm grateful for my parents and my extended family. Without them, I'm sure, I'm not sure where I would be. For example... I had a place to live when I came home, and all my immediate needs were met. I know other exonerees whose families have passed away during their incarceration and who come home without any support. I can't imagine how they feel, end quote. Important stuff. Yeah, the cost of wrongful convictions doesn't stop at exoneration. Well, uh, thank you, new co-host. You're welcome. I'm I, I'm happy to have you on board, and I think you add a lot. Spice. Well, a little bit of spice. Well, I will say, I will be saying a prayer for Kimberly Long tonight, and, um, and everybody who is out there wrongfully incarcerated. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I hope you join us for our next one. Uh, the, because we are family. Again, I roll. <laughs> The podcast I mentioned was Flawed Justice, the Kimberly Long Story Podcast, Long Slash Story Podcast. They have all of the original interviews, the police detectives, interviews with Jeff and Kim, Kim's response to finding out she was being exonerated. They just have a whole bunch. It's a very deep dive. If this interests you, there's a lot more information out there on there. On that podcast, I encourage you to listen to it. If you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, if there's an exoneree you want us to cover, please reach out to us on Facebook, Cleared Pod, or Instagram, Cleared Podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again to our producer, Christopher. Couldn't do it without you, sir. Couldn't, wouldn't. Couldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't do it without you. (laughs) Very accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Very accurate. And until next time, thank you. Assault City Sound Production.